You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And today, Ryan, you're going to introduce us to Perturb and Map. What is that? So variously, we've talked about the idea of structured prediction. So this is supervised learning where instead of just having a single label like cat versus dog or a regression label like temperature or something like that, you have a collection of things. And the collection of things together has some kind of interesting structure to it that you want to predict. So a good example, and maybe the classic example of this, is something like uh, image segmentation, where if you think about separating the foreground of an image from the background of an image, then you can view that as producing a little binary label for every single pixel in the image. Is this part of the foreground or is this part of the background? That is, if there's a cow in a field, is this part of the cow or is this part of the field? And so that's a little, uh, a little binary label, again, for every single pixel. And they have an interesting and complicated relationship. Uh, maybe we would expect that if one pixel is part of the foreground, then the pixel immediately next to it is also more likely to be part of the foreground. Plus interesting sort of effects like we would expect maybe um, pixels along the edge of the image to typically be background and so on. The point is that there's interesting structure that we expect to have on this label space. It's not a simple... Uh, one zero label is this big collection of things. And, th- and this happens in a lot of other uh, regimes as well. Uh, ranking, maybe search results and uh, things like um, uh, parsing natural language and, uh, and other sort of areas where you really need to um, sort of label a bunch of related data all at once. So this is a hard problem and the most common approach to it is to use something called a conditional random field. So when we talk about a random field, what we're talking about is a collection of random variables that are all coupled together in some interesting way. And a Markov random field is a very common way to model different kinds of uh, relationships where basically we can, we can talk about simple relationships essentially between each of, say, the pixels in an image, and then altogether that forms one big distribution over this collection. When we want to use these in a supervised way, though, we want to condition on some other kind of input. Like, for example, we might want to condition on the colors of the pixels that are, are nearby some pixel you want to label. So if we want to decide whether this particular pixel is cow or field, foreground versus background, then we might want to look at an interesting little patch of the actual image around that to decide whether or not it's foreground or background. And in the case of something like uh, like ranking search results, then we'll necessarily want to look at the properties of the documents that we're considering, as well as the query that, say, the user punched into the computer. So this is a very nice formalism for thinking about inducing distributions over complicated things. Typically, the way it'll work is we'll have some energy function, that, just like we would have in a Markov random field, and uh, e to the negative energy is then a a Gibbs distribution over the possible configurations. That is to say that what we're doing is coming up with a a log probability over all of these big configurations. And and if we sort of exponentiate that to make it positive and then normalize, it gives us a distribution. When we make that a conditional random field, then what we're going to do is make that energy a function of, say, the, the properties of the image or the properties of the query or whatever additional information that we have available. And so then we're changing the energy function um, according to that and therefore changing the log probability and the, you know, whatever the actual distribution is. And so that's cool. It lets us handle cows differently than it handled ducks and, uh, and, and deal with sort of foreground versus background depending on kind of what the actual image looks like. And this is also a natural thing to couple with things like deep learning where... Uh, instead of just saying that we're going to condition in, in sort of like with a, like a linear regression, we can now have a big deep convolutional neural network or various other kinds of things. So this is a very important idea in machine learning. 
uh, and it's it's you know it's been around for a while now, but it uh, you know it, it's essentially about handling big complicated um, big complicated uh, objects and distributions over them. There's something really challenging about conditional random fields, though, which is that most of the time for complicated random fields, normalization is very hard. That is to say that we get this energy function, we go e to the negative energy, we get this now positive function, but to interpret it as a probability distribution, we need to be able to sum over all the possible configurations. And if we think about summing over all the possible configurations of, say, something like the um, binary pixels in an image, then we're talking about a lot of possible configurations, two to the number of pixels, right? And that sum may be totally intractable, and we, we call that the partition function. Um, and it's necessary in order to do learning most of the time in these kinds of models because there's this tension between fitting the data well and ensuring that you're assigning low probability to the data that you haven't seen. And that uh, sort of tying down of areas that you haven't seen uh, for which you have no data, and so therefore you, you think they're unlikely, you need to be able to make sure that you can, you can account for that. So you can't just look at the data, you also have to look at the regions that don't have data or the thing, or, the, or it won't work. So the partition function is really important uh, to being able to compute these kinds, uh, these kinds of things. But that sum is challenging. So um, there's been a variety of approximations. People have done a lot of different kinds of work to sort of tackle this. So in this case, perturb and map but MAP stands for uh, maximum a posteriori. So that just means uh, perturb and then find the maximum of the energy. So this is a way to construct a generative model over things like, uh, say, binary image segmentations or other kinds of structured objects. But rather than treating them as a conditional random field where we con you know, condition on the data and then get this unwieldy Markov random field with a partition function that we don't know, instead what we're going to do is take our... Um, you know, take our sort of conditional random field and we're going to randomize the weights in it a little bit. And then we're going to find the most likely configuration under that new energy function. So we're gonna find the, that is we're gonna find the, the ground state configuration. So that's what we, why we say perturbative map. So you, you, you throw some noise into the weights and then you maximize. The reason that's an interesting thing to do is because it gives us a distribution over possible configurations, but we can sample from it without having to actually look at what the partition function is. We don't actually need that partition function in order to, in order to generate data from the model. Um, and the reason is, is because there's this kind of interesting discrepancy in a lot of sort of structured combinatorial objects in which counting is very, very hard, but finding the maximum configuration might be something that we can do efficiently. And here I mean efficiently and hard in the sense that uh, of like computational complexity. So uh, a good example of this is thinking about something like matching. So your sort of configuration space is things like permutation matrices. And so finding the partition function then is, um, is essentially computing a, a quantity called the permanent, which is like the determinant, but super hard. Um, and it's, uh, it's actually a sharp P. That is to say, super hard. And however, there is an efficient algorithm for finding the most likely matching in such a configuration. And this is called often the Hungarian algorithm, and it runs in something like cubic time. So it's polynomial. So it's very efficient to find the best configuration, but very hard to, uh, to, to compute a weighted sum over all configurations. And this comes up in a lot of different situations, like uh, shortest paths, and it comes up in image Markov random fields where finding the partition function is hard, but using like a uh, 
max flow min cut type algorithm may give us a very efficient way to uh, to find the the most likely configuration. So th this happens quite a lot where counting is super hard, but maximizing is easy. A couple of years ago, Papandreou and uh, and Yule proposed this idea of saying, well, let's just throw out the the, the sort of the basic idea of do, of computing this partition function, and let's instead take advantage of the fact that maximization is easy. Um, and somewhat in parallel, although they they sort of wrote this very nice paper earlier than we did, uh, Danny Tarlow and, um, and Rich Zimmel and I wrote a paper also talking about this idea where we called them randomized optimum models, uh, where the idea is you randomize a problem whose optimum you then compute. Um, but what was really wonderful about the, the original perturbed map paper is that in addition to sort of proposing this idea of modulating the weights and then um, and then finding the most likely configuration, they also sort of um, introduced to the machine learning community this idea of the uh, of this kind of gumball max trick that I think we've talked about a little bit before, uh, and observed that if you select the perturbations correctly, then you actually get the original model back. That is to say that you have this giant discrete distribution, and we know from the sort of gumball max trick that if you modulate that distribution, um, it, sort of you modulate the parameters of that distribution and then maximize, then you get the same distribution as you would have if you just if you just sort of like uh, exponentiated and normalized. And that's just a really, really beautiful result to show that actually these things are uh, these things are very tightly coupled. And uh, and then it's it's led to sort of like an interesting class of of other ways to think about uh, inference in these kinds of models. And it's kind of spawned a little industry. There's a there's a book coming out, um, not uh, with sort of several different contributed chapters. Uh, I think it's if it's not out yet, it will be in the next couple of months. It's always nice when we're tackling difficult machine learning problems to remind ourselves of of which parts we uh, want to work hard to preserve sort of exactness in and which parts we'd like to be willing to approximate. And this is a different take on that for conditional random fields. And I, I, so I think it's a really sort of fun area to track. We'll have more on Perturban Map and the paper by Papandreou and Yule on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's listener question on Talking Machines is about the difference between artificial intelligence and machine learning. My name is Bob Ducharme, and I'm an author and tech writer at CCRI, a research firm in Charlottesville, Virginia. Your podcast has always done a great job of distinguishing between the concept of machine learning and the concept of AI. The popular press lately, not such a good job. My question for you is this. Of all of the classic tools and techniques of AI from before the current large-scale applications of machine learning, do you see any of those tools and techniques still playing much role in current research? For example, the use of symbolic logic using programming languages like Lisp or Prolog or their derivatives. Thanks. Thanks for the question. So it's interesting that you would, you would talk about how we distinguish between machine learning and artificial intelligence, because I actually don't think we do really distinguish all that much between these. Um, and that's because to me, uh, intelligence has to do with adapt, you know, adapting to your surroundings and that it's very difficult to talk about something being intelligent without talking about learning. And so I really don't see these, I don't see a bright line between them actually at all. In response to the meat of your question, I think it's a very interesting thing to ask whether some of the older te techniques in AI have really, um, you know, kind of what influence they have on current research in, in AI and machine learning. And I think 
one one important thing to keep in mind is there's a sense in which computer science as a field is actually all about AI. Now, whether you're talking about building systems or whether you're talking about um, proving theorems or whatever it is that we're doing, ultimately, computer science is about the analysis of algorithms for automation. That is, how do we make computers do things that we want them to do for us? And that is, in a sense, indistinguishable from AI. That's not to say that the that all of these areas are, are the same as the subfield of AI, and it's not to diminish them in any way, but it's simply to observe that computer science is about automating these devices. And, and I think that that is, also, that is really what, what sort of um, we're trying to do when we solve AI. It's like, how do we build computers and how do, those, how do, we, how do we build reliable systems that do, the, do things on our behalf? So I think it's difficult to overstate the, the impact that thinking about the AI problem has had on lots of things that are incredibly important to say, you know, an undergraduate computer science curriculum but that we maybe have at some point stopped calling AI. A really good example of this is, are things like search. Basically, any situation where you're coming up with an efficient data structure to search over some large set, a lot of these techniques grew out of uh, a lot of these techniques grew out of um, uh, of AI. Same thing with planning and and other kinds of algorithms that we've kind of stopped thinking as being a core part of AI, but but really I think kind of grew out of out of that kind of thinking. And these are still incredibly important. And in fact, I think if we were going to look and say, what's the most amazing accomplishment, uh, you know, most amazing recent accomplishment in, um, you know, in AI over the last several years, it, a lot of us would probably say that the AlphaGo victory um, is, is the thing, right? That this is, this is the key moment in the last couple of years where you said, okay, wow, people are really making progress on AI. Well, you know, neural networks were a big part of that, to be sure, but Monte Carlo tree search was also a big part of it, maybe the bigger part of it, uh, where the clever combination of convolutional neural networks with what in some ways is a more traditional approach to playing games that has not a lot to do with, uh, you know, with sort of um, modern deep learning. I, you know, I, th I think it's, uh, that looks like ideas from good old fashioned AI actually uh, contributing very heavily to a modern uh, to a modern success so I guess I don't think these uh, I don't think these things are going anywhere you, you mentioned Lisp as another example um, and one of the very exciting areas of machine learning right now is probabilistic programming and one of the the sort of uh, in the last couple of years that's gained a lot of interest and part of the reason it's it's gained a lot of interest at least to some extent, is because of the work of like Josh Tenenbaum's group. So this is like Noah Goodwin and Vakash Mansinga and Dan Roy and other folks uh, who developed the church programming language. And the uh, and and church is scheme. It's just a dialect of scheme. And, and scheme is a stripped down dialect of Lisp. One thing you have to keep in mind is that when we're talking about a methodological field, and make no mistake, machine learning is a methodological field. We're building algorithms. We're building ways to solve problems. Um, that the importance of a particular idea is not necessarily well captured by, by whether or not it is hot in the methodological research area right now. Um, that is to say that linear regression is a really important, incredibly important, maybe the most important idea in supervised learning. Um, and people don't do a lot of research on linear regression these days. 
But the fact that if I go to NIPS or ICML or I pick up, you know, uh, JMLR or something like that, that I don't see a lot of papers on linear regression does not mean that linear regression has become a bad idea. It just means that it doesn't reflect the cutting edge of methodological research. And I think the same is true for a lot of these important ideas from, um, you know, from years ago in, in, uh, in sort of artificial intelligence research. They're still good ideas. They're just not the, they just don't represent the, uh, the juiciest frontier of research in this area right now. If you've got a question for Talking Machines, email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet us at TLKNGMCHNS. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Jake Abernathy of the University of Michigan. Um, and we got to talk to him at ICML this year in New York. And I asked Jake the first question that we ask everyone when we sat down. How did you get where you are? Oof, uh, complicated. Uh, do you want me to start with, um, with elementary school or? <laughs> Kindergarten. It all, it all factors in, I guess. Uh, I, I, you know, I have an interesting story that I'm actually a high school dropout. Um, and, um, but then um, turned high school dropout turned... Um, uh, professional juggler, uh, and then turned uh, math nerd, um, and was a math geek, and then decided to get into computer science because uh, a GSI and my a teaching assistant in my uh, undergrad told me I should, um, and then uh, thought that I should get into bioinformatics because that sounded interesting. Um, there weren't enough mathematical abstractions in bioinformatics at the time. I found out about this thing called machine learning from an internship I did in France when I was about 20 two or three, um, and then I guess got a little bit addicted to that, uh, and by the time I was uh, 25, I uh, got into uh, UC Berkeley for a PhD program, and, you know, then um, things escalated from there, I guess. Uh, that I ended up, after that, did a postdoc at the University of Pennsylvania, um, that was 2011, 2013, and then uh, started a faculty job in 2013 at the University of Michigan, and this is where I am today. So tell me about what your group is doing now at U of M. Well, there's a bunch of things going on at U of M. I have a um, still a pretty small group, and it's been it's been fluctuating recently. Um, but uh, I can talk about uh, you know two different kinds of things that I've been doing recently. One thing that's been taking up a lot of my time over the last three months is this project with uh, Flint and the Flint water troubles. This is uh, unusually um, a applied project that I got engaged in, and it's been actually a lot of fun. I mean, most of my research is on the theoretical side. I uh, publish papers mostly with um, LaTeX and mathematical expressions with uh, theorems and proofs and things like that, um, and haven't done a lot of applied work, at least in the publishing front. But um, I guess I got a little bit interested in uh, data science-y stuff, uh, particularly when I started analyzing uh, course grades and homeworks uh, scores for students. Now, um, now uh, teaching classes in machine learning and in computer science more broadly is a big data problem because the number of students that are enrolling in computer science degrees now is exploding. It's been, I know in Michigan it's been increasing something like 12% per year, the number of enrollments. So um, I started playing, playing around with those data sets and then uh, organized this uh, data science team uh, we call it the Michigan Data Science Team. It was actually part of my NSF career proposal. I said mm. I was going to uh, organize this uh, group, thinking I would put together a sort of a group that would work on competitive machine learning challenges, um, you know, work on things like Kaggle problems, and maybe also local problems, and get people excited. And we had we, we give up prizes when students get the best predictions. In the same way that Kaggle works, we were going to have internal prizes for challenges. Uh, and one of the first, you know, one of the first data sets that we worked with that I was particularly excited by was um, I scraped a whole bunch of data from RateMyProfessor.com, uh, and we decided to do a bunch of sentiment analysis on the actual text of those ratings to figure out what are the, um, you know, what are the uh, 
how can you determine um, the quality of a professor just based on the things that are said about him or her uh, online? So the Michigan Data Science team um, became just a little side project. Um, we had about maybe a dozen, maybe maybe twenty, maybe twenty students coming regularly to these meetings, uh, and you know we gave we're giving out five hundred dollars, six hundred dollars in prizes early on. That was in the beginning of this year. This all started about um, so started about a year ago, uh, in, the, in the September of two thousand fifteen. Uh, what happened was in, in around, um, I think it was February of uh, 2016, uh, a few months ago, we got contacted by folks at University of Michigan Flint, and they said they needed folks who were experts on, uh, who could work with and try to reason about and, you know, and deal with data sets on the Flint water crisis because at the time there wasn't a lot of um, work being done. And what, ha what happened was uh, Google had given money to UM Flint, University of Michigan Flint, there's a campus, uh, satellite campus in, in Flint, Michigan, to, to develop something um, that would be useful for citizens and folks living in Flint to understand the uh, kind of the, the details and the nitty gritty of the, the water crisis issues. And I can get in, I'll get into the details of that in a moment. But what they decided was they needed someone who's, you know, in, on kind of the machine learning side of things, on the sort of data side of things. And they contacted um, folks in the University of Michigan Ann Arbor, which is where I am, uh, and said, we, do you have anyone or a group that can, you know, would like to engage in this? And so they, they asked me, and, and I said, sure, and I, this sounds like fun. I mean, this sounds interesting. I, think, I thought it was going to be maybe a small little mini side project. But instead, it's, it's basically occupied my life for the last three months. It's been probably the majority of my time has been wow. spent dealing with this. Um, and what, what became clear is that um, the, what we, was cool about this and what became clear when I started taking, taking uh, drives up to, okay, so just the background of the Flint water crisis, what, what happened was um, it, became, it was discovered by academics um, and also folks in the you know, in governmental agencies that there were problems with Flint's water. And what had happened was they had switched the, the water source from um, the, the Huron River to, uh, to uh, Flint, the Flint River. They just changed the water source from one to another. And in the process, didn't do the necessary things that you need to do to, keep the, to, keep the, uh, to not corrode the pipes and the, um, the things that keep lead pipes uh, um, you know, safe to have water, mostly safe to have water flowing through them. Um, and when they did that, when they did the water switch, and no one really noticed, but all of a sudden later people started testing their water, and high levels of lead were being discovered in the water, um, and significantly higher than, than I think people would have people would would have thought. And it looks like maybe the government was trying to fudge the numbers to show that it wasn't the case. But in any case, they switched the water source back. Things are improving, but um, in the meantime, the entire city stopped drinking their water, and of course, national news media attention was was drawn to the issue. And of course, the presidential Democratic presidential um, there was a. Um, a debate that was held in Flint, and of course they were talking about it at that point. And it was, you know, a, it was a Republican governor, so it was sort of a, a way to score political points in the Democratic Party. But amidst all that, um, because of the fact that um, people were concerned about their drinking water, they all started to get their water tested. In fact, the state of Michigan decided to make it free to test your water. And uh, because they wanted to be as transparent as possible, they were publishing those tests on a regular basis. And all of a sudden, we had a, a huge data set of 20,000 um, uh, lead samples uh, that were being, you know, that were measured in various uh, places around the city. And of course, they even gave us the addresses of those locations. Wow! And uh, in the process of going to Flint to you know, just to ask about what data sets were available, and I started talking to city officials. It became clear the city of Flint does not have anyone that's really able to do any data science or um, anything that really takes advantage of the information they have. Now, they have collect data, they have records of things, and they, but they don't seem to be using any real scale to, you know, make good decisions for the city. So we just started looking at the data we could get our hands on. We got data on um, every home in Flint, all, you know, the age of the property, the um, uh, you know how large it is. Um, there are some records on the service 
service lines used uh, for the property, so what's the material of the service line, They're, those are very noisy records. We have uh, samples of water being tested. Um, we, um, we know, for example, uh, um, what the nearest fire hydrant is. It might seem strange, but the type of the fire hydrant on a block happens to be relevant to understand the actual materials under the ground. We were able to scrape a bunch of data to figure out people's water usage because it turns out that your water bill is actually publicly available online. I should, by the way, say a lot of this stuff was done by students in, my, in this data science group. So um, after uh, several weeks of, of work with a lot of these students, we, we had several data sets, and we, we, we noticed there were several very obvious prediction problems. You, I mean, only a fraction of homes were actually testing, like maybe a quarter or a third. So you might want to ask, well, what homes are actually at risk? What homes are, should, should actually be testing their water and be concerned? And we were able to provide predict predictions for that. And so we have sent spreadsheets to different organizations to say, here's where we think you guys should be focusing your efforts. Um, more recently, uh, you know, and we were able to, of course, you know, use standard methods to sort of, you know, figure out what were the, you know, what are the kind of the, the key features of a property um, that would determine, um, uh, you know, uh, possibility of risk. And you might think, oh, well, if it's in a risky neighborhood, it turns out that's actually not as true as you might think, that the, that the high lead readings don't seem to be lo lo localized in any real way. You don't notice that there's, you know, um, it's this neighborhood or that neighborhood. Um, so uh, the other things that we've been working on recently uh, and it's been um, it's been this has been very exciting. There's um, the, the there's been an appropriation by the state of Michigan to replace a lot of these service lines because there's an expectation that um, that the the problem is uh, the service line. the service line is the pipe that connects the house to the water main. There's always a big pipe running down the street. That's the on the public property, and then of course there's a line that runs between the, the house and the, the the water main. That's called the service line. And in fact, the service line has two pieces. There's and 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 the, the problem is that to find out what the actual material is uh, of the service line, you have to send a hydrovac over. The hydrovac has to actually dig into the ground um, and actually inspect the type of material. So uh, we have a really interesting problem here where um, before you spend $1,000 digging into the ground to determine the material type, you'd actually like to have a decent estimate of the likelihood of finding an actual lead pipe because if you dig into the ground and you don't find a lead pipe, it would be somewhat embarrassing for the, for the, for the, for the government if uh, they spend all their money in their own places. So. We've been actually having meetings with the, the, you know, the person in charge of actually deciding where to um, make decisions about where to actually inspect for, for lead, and that's been exciting. And I mean, I think um, this particular individual, it's uh, General McDaniel, um, he seems to be interested in big data, and he seems to have respect for what we're doing. And it's clear that like the, the state of Michigan is not, um, it's not really equipped to do this kind of stuff. There's no real data science people in the who work for the city of Flint who. Um, are, you know, are able to, uh, you know, to, to help out with this stuff. So it's been exciting for us to be able to insert ourselves. Um, maybe I'll add one more point to this, and one thing that's been clear from the work we're doing, um, which is, which is that the uh, the media attention to the service lines is um, somewhat of a concern uh, to us, and we, we feel like it may be maybe um, problematic. We've been we've been somewhat reticent to actually make this public, but I guess I'm talking on this podcast now, and I'm sure this is listened to by, by at least tens of thousands of people. Um, the, uh, the, the service lines are probably not the problem. And we know that because we, we have um, some record of the service line types and we find actually only weak correlations between the levels of lead that come out of people's taps and the type of service line material. What's likely to be the actual major culprit are things like uh, lead solder used in the homes, possible lead pipes used within the homes. There's been concern with different types of water heaters, uh, apparently fixtures in the home, maybe the actual faucet type might be the actual cause of lead. Um, and you know, if you unscrew an aerator, oftentimes little particles of lead that were in the pipes originally have now been caught in the, in the, uh, in the, in the uh, aerator, the, the faucet aerator. Um, 
So unfortunately, there is less data on these things. Um, the service lines, there's actually records, at least to some extent, there's very weak, um, weakly maintained records. Um, but we've been trying to get to these things because, you know, it's an interesting public health issue and, and suddenly people are, you know, money is going to be flowing in the direction of helping this particular city and maybe all other cities as well. And uh, we noticed there really hasn't been any real, you know, big data-like efforts, you know, machine learning-driven efforts to try to understand these problems. And for this particular instance, for, for Flint, um, we happen to have amazingly impressive data sets um, just because, you know, of all the attention that's been paid to the problem. I will mention that the um, that the original goal of this, which is something that's still being worked on, is actually an app that's being developed by um, by students uh, and faculty at UM Flint, and they're actually building a little app. And this whole project is funded by Google. Google gave about 150 million dollars for this project, and that app is going to be used for. Um, you know, folks in Flint to be able to look up their address and get an estimate. You know, what's the likelihood you have a lead service line? What's the if you have you tested your water? No. Here's what we here's what we think you're going to read if you get it tested. You probably should get it tested, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and to provide some information about that. So, the end goal, um, or at least one 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 of the goals that we've been working on, is actually just providing value to to citizens, folks who live in Flint. But you know, the stuff we're you know we're also doing is to try to help out with you know governments and and, and decisions that governments are making. Um, so yeah, that's um, that's a very brief overview of the work that we're doing in, uh, on this particular project. So in your time in this, have you found anybody else who's working on municip municipal big data? Um, well, there are. I mean, there there are. I, I should I should give some credit. There there are um, folks that work uh, in. Um, this is usually referred to as GIS. Uh, GIS um, is I guess that. Um, I always get this wrong. Uh, geographical information services. So, I, I, there's there's um, certain departments and, and organizations that refer to GIS as basically when you're doing things like city data, like if it's crime data or you know where um, you know where roads are, uh, where pipes are, where you know where um, signs are. Um, they're often storing that stuff, and people are working on that stuff. And you do see that there is research on, for example, automatic automatically detecting the location of street signs and other things using vision algorithms. So there has been uh, work on this stuff, but um, there's been less work on um, understanding um, uh, con water contaminants, and that's probably because the data sets have tended to not be very large. Uh, mm. Civil engineers, you know, they go home to home to get to get samples of water. Um, uh, so the idea that we had basically, um, you know, uh, roughly 10,000 or more people volunteer their time to submit a sample was was kind of amazing and was you know made, made it you know useful and interesting for folks like uh, machine learning researchers to get involved in the in the in the problem. Um, so yeah, this is a very sort of specialized issue using actual data science for for. Uh, I mean, obviously. People who, you know, I, I should give credit to civil engineers. We've been talking to civil engineers and water quality experts. You know, they do lots of stuff, but they, they tend to not be, um, you know, they don't come from statistical backgrounds. They're not, they're not trying to use um, complex algorithmic tools to actually make estimation. They tend to be trying to reason about, you know, engineering questions, you know, like, um, you know, what, what are the what, what types of materials should you using? How do you, you know, how do you avoid corrosion? Um, um, how can you test for things like Legionella? Those are the kinds of questions, you know, that, that those folks are um, primarily interested in. And generally, you work on questions of statistics and economics, right? This is a sort of a sidetrack for you. Yeah, this is a bit of a sidetrack. Although, you know, one of the the things that I um, that I emphasize a lot when I give talks and, and I and I try to remind people about is that people tend to um, think of machine learning and economics as completely separate fields, and there's like very little relation. Um, and I find that to be surprising because I find that for me, machine learning is entirely about economics. That we're 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 trying to figure out how to uh, allocate resources efficiently, and algorithms um, uh, are ways to do that. Markets are ways to do that, and Algorithms are ways to do that as well. Uh, in this particular case of Flint, um, I mean, if you think about it, well, you know, we're not 
whether our predictions are good or not is not really not really that interesting. What we need to do is tell this particular you know government officials where they should dig. Now that's a an economics question. We are trying to tell them how where they should be concerned about finding lead pipes. Um, and if they want to save money, if they want to you know make the process more efficient, they should do it using tools that we have. Uh, and I think that's something that I you know have have tried to. Um, Try to uh, emphasize uh, in, in you know in, in when I talk to people about you know the research that I do. So you mentioned that your data is showing that the lead pipes might not actually be the problem. It's maybe the older housing housing stock in Flint is actually the problem. So when you're up against a uh, an issue like that where the assumption is not borne out by the data, how do you broach those questions? It's um, it turns out that that little fact, a lot of the policymakers actually a lot of the the in-depth policymakers, they seem to be aware that this may not solve the problem. Mm. Um, but um, the the problem with this issue is that service lines, replacing pipes that connect from like a government piece of property, a, a, a water main to the to the house, you can make an argument for that to a citizen. Saying that we're going to enter your home and start to do testing and maybe replace some of your plumbing, um, that's a lot harder for governments. And particularly in Flint, you know, the, the population in Flint does not trust both neither this, either the city government or the state government. Well, they especially don't trust the state government. They may trust the city government a little bit more. Given um, the history of the takeover in that particular city, they would have a really lot I mean, of reason not to. There's a lot of... Um, uh, there are a lot of issues in Flint, but 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 yeah, they, 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 I think that's a town that where the population feels like they haven't really been supported in the way that they should have. I mean, um, even the, even the University of Michigan, um, you know, didn't get a lot of credit for helping uh, for for getting in, involved in this crisis. I mean, it was actually researchers from Virginia Tech that really broke the story, uh, and uh, uh, and it was a doctor from MSU that that observed that um, blood lead levels were were elevated in Flint um, soon after this uh, the, the crisis was uh, you know uh, happened. She actually think she she worked along side uh, Mark Edwards from Virginia Tech. I mean, you know, they really broke the story on, on this. Um, uh, so anyway. Um, so if you were to uh, give someone who's thinking about their, their thesis or what sort of project they want to embark on next um, advice about municipal data or working with it, what would you say to them? Um, well, if you're going to be purely a data scientist, I would say try to find areas where we have um, um, where we can somehow uh, obtain data sets on the on the scale of uh, of, of what we've been able to, to do. Uh, you know, getting, for example, information about every parcel of land was 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 surprisingly easy, and um, um, we have poked people to send us certain spreadsheets, and they've been more willing to do that than we thought they should have been because <laughs> for example we now know how many dogs are in every address in Flint uh, which um, I didn't know they kept little, that information I, apparently they do so um, um, but but you know the thing about and what I've been observing a lot is when you're trying to do stuff with data one of the problems is that um, everyone has spreadsheets on machines inside of municipal buildings or uh, in government you know government offices the question is you know what incentive do they have to provide it to you um, and and you know, cracking that nut has been an interesting one. I think this is something that anyone who kind of deals with real-world situations, who deals with real-world data, and tries to solve you know problems. And a lot of more em empirical researchers, I think, deal with this a lot. Um, having someone actually send you the spreadsheet that contains all the information that they have, you know, it's it's often hard. You're pestering them; they don't see a lot of benefit for it. Um, but uh, but 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 the the records that are being kept have so much value. I mean, in in some sense, there's you know there's privacy issues all over the place here. Um, the fact that we get to see everyone's water usage in the city of Flint by scraping a website is crazy. I mean, it's, how do we have access to that information? Well, for some arbitrary reasons, that information was made available online um, because I guess it's a public utility. But uh, you could imagine that. Um, um, you know, for other other scenarios, that would be you know inappropriate, and there would be lawsuits, and they would they wouldn't allow them. 
Um, so I think what I'd be interested in for other municipal problems is uh, uh, figuring out how you can, you know, how can one get access to, to data sets that, that probably we shouldn't have access to. And I think there's probably a broader question of like, um, I mean, I would say something I'm interested in is a broader question of like, how do we get organizations to, to realize that there is potential and unseen value to making information that they're collecting available to the, to the world? Because, um, you know, you, you, you put out a spreadsheet on something and all of a sudden you can have a bunch of undergrads and undergrads and grad students, actually it's mostly grad students, uh, working on this stuff and, and coming trying to figure out problems and, you know, and predictions. I'll just give you another example. We, um, uh, the project we worked on kind of alongside, and right, we started right before the Flint stuff, was working with the University Musical Society. The University Musical Society puts out a, um, these um, dozens of concerts every year uh, to, you know, for the population around Michigan. And they really do have some of the best shows in all of Michigan. I mean, they, they get some, some of the top acts to come to Ann Arbor. And of course, every visit to their website is collected. Every time someone purchases a ticket, it's collected. It's it's recorded. They they release this data to us. I mean, basically everything you could imagine, they released to us. And they said, "Can you help us? We need to figure out how to recommend, uh, you know, um, uh, shows to people." Mm -hmm. And we were like, "Sure, we can do that." Yeah, well, that's the stuff that we do actually. Uh, and a lot of these students, uh, you know, really engage very heavily on this stuff. And essentially, these this, these organizations got, you know, I would say tens of thousands of dollars of free com uh, consulting resources without paying a dime, we, you know, we did it for fun. I mean, these students basically did, you know, you know, working on that because they had free time and they want something in their resume and this looks cool. So, um, you know, trying to encourage other organizations to, you know, we had personal relationships with the folks in the University Musical Society. We were able to, you know, to, to, to bring this about, but um, other organizations may not see the value um, in, in, in making their data available to, to researchers or to, you know, academic organizations. Jake Abernathy of the University of Michigan, which I should disclose is my alma mater. You know, it's interesting. We've had uh, we had Ian Murray on two episodes mm -hmm. ago, and he is also a very serious juggler. So mm -hmm. I don't know. So it's been a it's been a juggler kind of month. Maybe we if you juggle and you're in machine learning, tweet at us. Maybe we need to do a study I don't know, about ac this. According to Ian, there's a huge overlap. Yeah. Wow. Okay. All right. Juggling correlations. Our first talking machines paper. That's it for us this week. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. Tune in next episode. Thank you.